This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In the wake of the financial crisis, a bill came forth looking to address the failures of the financial sector that led to the 2008 crisis. The Dodd-Frank bill put restrictions on the banking sector to prevent them from somewhat freewheeling with the funds of millions of Americans, some of whom are still trying to build their wealth back today. But now the Trump administration is looking to change some of those rules and ease the burden on the banking sector. It has many people worried, though, that we could be opening another Pandora's box. The House of Representatives has already moved forward with their bill, the Financial Choice Act, which is a relatively new term for many of you listening to us right now. To take a look at the bill and its impact, we're joined here in studio by David Zaring, Associate Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. And joining us on phone, Peter Conti-Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at Wharton. David, great to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. It's great to be here. Thank you, Peter. Great to have you on the phone with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I guess first, uh, let's talk about this, because David, because as I mentioned, this is basically, this is a new term for, for a lot of people, maybe hearing this for the first time, the Financial Choice Act. Let's, let's get into really the basics of what it is and what they're trying to do. Well, this the act is a really comprehensive cutting back on many of the things that were created by the uh, Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act in 2010. And so, for example... Um, yeah, so one way I think about it is that it's basically a very deregulatory act. And so some of the things that uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, Act put in place, like the the Volcker Rule requiring yep. banks to separate proprietary trading desks from the rest of the structure, um, an orderly bankruptcy process that would uh, 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 be administered by the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which itself was a new agency, these things and many other things would uh, – be taken away by the Financial Choice Act. And, and then in addition, um, many of the substantive requirements of financial regulation would be uh, lowered explicitly and ex expressly for smaller financial institutions, small banks with uh, not too much capital, uh, or, or I mean, with, with not too many assets. Uh, Peter, your reaction to, to this plan and it being brought forward, and either some of the positives or, or uh, the negatives uh, of bringing this forward. Yeah, so the, you know, as David said, the, the Financial Choice Act, um, uh, much like Dodd-Frank, is sort of a grab bag of uh, just a huge number of proposals touching virtually every aspect of the, uh, of the financial regulatory state uh, that have been percolating over the last eight or so years, and then uh, put together under uh, a single legislative umbrella. So it's hard to say, you know, up or down on the entire thing when right. we're talking about so many different rules that are just added up together. But it, it, uh, what it's, I think, Go ahead, Peter. I'm sorry. What I think is most intriguing about it is that it, this is something where, uh, where President Trump has not seemed to take much of an interest. His Treasury just released yesterday um, uh, a report uh, following an executive order from the president that basically outlines its vision of what uh, financial reform should look like. And in many respects, it's, uh, it's sort of in lockstep with, with financial choice. But what, what the point with, of all this is that the Republicans haven't changed since Dodd-Frank in terms of uh, what they want. This is, uh, the Financial Choice Act is uh, is very heavily, as David said, deregulatory. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the lobbyists from from industry are going to be 
uh, most enthusiastic about it. And despite the fact that Trump rides this wave of anti-Wall Street populism to the White House, those voices are virtually absent from this discussion. This is squarely a uh, the same House Republicans who'd been railing against Dodd-Frank since 2010 uh, are still carrying the torch for financial reform even after Trump's election. As, as Dodd-Frank has kind of played out over the last few years, though, and, and a lot of people have wondered this, of similar to what they say with the Affordable Care Act, that, you know, it has a lot of good elements to it, but it, it could use a tweak here, tweak there. Is Dodd-Frank, in your mind, David, in, in, in kind of that same boat? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I'm pretty happy with the okay. way that Dodd-Frank has worked. But I will say that um, many people on both sides of the uh, uh, political aisle have said that one thing that Dodd-Frank does is it takes America's a unique country in that we have, you know, 18 enormous banks, uh, which is more than most countries, and then, you know, thousands of much smaller financial institutions. Right. And those smaller financial institutions had in the basic statute basically been sub- subjected to all the rules yep. that the really big – maybe too big to fail banks were also subjected to. And so a lot of people, Democrats as well as Republicans, have said that maybe it makes sense to reduce the regulatory burdens on those small financial institutions. And it's not because they don't take risks or are necessarily safer, but I think the idea is that if um, some Main Street bank fails, uh, it's not going to impact the economy in some way we really need to worry about. And if Wells Fargo or Bank of America fails, then we're talking about a catastrophe. Right. So the regulatory idea animating some of these reforms is, well, then let's just focus on making sure that Wells Fargo and Bank of America are well-regulated and not worry so much about the sort of uh, what small community banks see as intrusive regulation uh, that has been imposed on them by Dodd-Frank. But- but obviously, Peter, one of the things, and we've talked with you about this in the past, and obviously with the fact that Wells Fargo, uh, you know, obviously is coming off its latest uh, issues uh, with its uh, accounting issues, uh, is the fact that, you know, we're still several years out from this, and these instances do pop up still. And I think for a lot of Americans, they feel that uh, for the most part, Dodd-Frank has probably done a, a pretty decent job of trying to make sure that the consumer, or as David laid out, the the small bank, doesn't take it on the chin as much as maybe they have in the past. Yeah, I mean, you're you're getting at two two questions. I mean, the the name of Dodd Frank, Dodd Frank is the nickname. The formal name is the Wall Street uh, Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. So it's really those are the two big pillars. One is this whole new architecture for how to deal with problematic financial institutions before they fail and then in the event of their failure uh, to prevent a a wide-scale financial cataclysm. The other side is about protecting consumers from perceived abuses. That's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I think Elizabeth Warren and the like. Um, And uh, the CFPB has been extraordinarily aggressive during uh, its its life in in its enforcement, in its rulemaking, uh, in its litigation. And that has made it a big target. What's intriguing is going to be watching how those two lines uh, start to get navigated as this bill, which is now out of the House, and will go to the Senate, uh, where we can expect a lot of uh, weighing in from the Secretary of the Treasury and, uh, and, uh, and the White House, to see how they respond to this. Uh, it doesn't strike me, I'm not uh, a political expert by any stretch, but it doesn't strike me as a winning ticket. Uh, to be aggressively uh, uh, saying that 
that banks should be able to do or sell or, or say anything they'd like to consumers, whatever the consequences. Right. I think and that is that they, the risk they run there is activating a very populist wave uh, that at least to some extent motivated the campaigns of Donald Trump and on the other side, Bernie Sanders. Uh, and, and there we could see the Republican-Trump coalition start to really fracture. We haven't seen it largely because people weren't really paying attention to this uh, as Washington, the nation, has been consumed by Jim Comey and uh, uh, and the like. Uh, but I think people will start to pay attention the closer this gets to passage. You mentioned oh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. You uh, no, I, I, I agree with uh, everything that uh, Peter said. I mean I, I'm no political uh, expert, but I think – uh, from what I understand, Washington insiders are uh, not very convinced that this legislation has much of a chance of making it through the Senate. So right. the House, uh, as Peter said, you know, these uh, financial reform statutes often are a grab bag of stuff that's been lying around waiting for people to pick up. And essentially, the House took almost all of the deregulatory tools that were out there and put them all into this one statute. Right. And they've successfully passed it, so that is a, an achievement. It's hard to get anything done these days in Washington. Uh, but um, it might be a few too many uh, deregulatory tools to right. uh, get by uh, a potential Democratic filibuster, let alone the moderates in the Senate and the Republicans. So do you think it, it has a chance to move forward in the Senate if we see some sort of negotiation and, as you mentioned, maybe a pullback on some of these things? And probably there are a few elements to it that, that, that could be a benefit. But the, obviously, as you said, the number of them may just uh, be a little overwhelming. Yes. I mean, I think the the political calculus is, um, you know, the Senate uh, has some states where um, uh, they're largely suburban and prosperous and yeah. uh, Hillary Clinton style voters. And the House has uh, some of these, too. And the, and the idea is that these moderate pro-business Democrats might be behind uh, some reduction in uh, some of the regulatory aspects that are set forth in the Financial Choice Act. So, for example, there's this rule uh, uh, that the Department of Labor um, passed about um, the sort of advice, retirement advice, uh, the obligations that advisors sure. owe yep. to older people. This bill would uh, repeal that rule. Um, and um, uh, you can imagine a world where somebody says that uh, that kind of red tape cutting is, is somehow is appealing um, and uh, – <laughs> uh, and so maybe that's the kind of thing where uh, out of these, uh, you know, 50 different proposals, five of them could be agreed upon and, and uh, come together into a legislative package that would just barely uh, pass. Peter? I think 2017 is the new 2009 uh, and 10. And as it, with 2009 and 10, the Obama administration's decision to sequence its major reforms as first health care and then financial regulation, and then financial reform, uh, had a profound consequence for the shape that financial reform took. Dodd-Frank is a, uh, uh, it's almost radically centrist in its orientation. It's heavily technocratic. Uh, it doesn't bust up the big banks. It's not, uh, although uh, the compliance and regulatory costs of Dodd-Frank are non-trivial, uh, the idea is let's go forward in a partnership between industry and government to navigate these uh, these hard issues of how you how you uh, can prevent uh, a 2008 crisis from happening again, uh, and because it became so centrist, it's uh, it's it faces a problem that it's not going to motivate people to come out in its defense in the same way. And again, the it that I'm talking about here really is what we what is what are called Title One and Title Two of Dodd Frank, which is uh, you know, how do you regulate these 
these mega banks before they fail, and if they fail, how do you unwind them safely? Uh, it's it's hard for me to imagine, you know, a, a big protest with people with signs that says, you know, to say preserve the orderly liquidation authority, you know, because right. what my uncle Joe really really cares about. Um, and so that the politics of this are going to be extraordinarily interesting. Uh, the fights here are not going to be uh, about ends. People are going to not, or they're going to be engaged in an extraordinarily high level of rhetoric. I think you'll hear a lot of accusations that no, it's the other side that's trying to damage the financial system, um, and it will be incredibly difficult for the public to pay attention to this and really fix on what the debate is about. So. That makes me incredibly cautious about making any predictions about which way this will go. Well, you brought up a little bit ago about the CFPB, and and obviously for a lot of people that you know have a cursory idea of what it does, uh, as we were kind of alluding to before, it it is seen as an entity that is trying to protect the consumer. You did mention, yeah. Peter, though, kind of the at times the aggressive nature that 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 organization that entity has had to have. Uh, my question to you is, in some cases, have they been too aggressive or have they needed to be aggressive just to kind of stay even or stay one step ahead of the banking sector? You know, the, the CFPB represents uh, a, a sort of case study in um, uh, political survival. Um, they have been incredibly aggressive. And when you read through some of the actions that have caused the most howls from industry, uh, it's not just, oh, they're stopping us from being crooks. There are real questions of discretion and judgment where you've got the director of the CFPB and their enforcement staff just killing uh, these these banks. Some some of these banks or or financial institutions that are relatively small uh, with huge fines uh, on the basis of actions that certainly in an earlier era uh, would have been counseled about rather than uh, be so aggressively enforced. So I think that there's no question but that they've been aggressive. The, the question, and this is the exception in, in the Dodd-Frank kind of popular understanding that CFPB is something that people can relate to. People hate the idea of being ripped off by their banks, of being, you know, getting thrown at them a lot of legalese or, or, or complexity that is designed only to take money out of their pocket. And that is exactly going to be the card that uh, the Democrats in the Senate play aggressively and try to pin on Republicans as we head into the 2018 midterms in both the House and the Senate. The idea that these senators and representatives have sided with big banks in an effort to rip off the common man, that, that is absolutely going to be a part of, of, this, uh, of this conversation. What the House Republicans have done, whether or not this is going to be successful in the Senate, is given themselves uh, put, a, put a target on their backs because uh, they've voted this, this bill uh, out of the House. David? Uh, one thing that the CFPB does have going for it is that it's uh, it's it's done quite well in court. So uh, its regulatory record is um, relatively strong uh, in that, uh, as Peter suggested, it's it's really weighed into a bunch of different areas. But it also, uh, when those uh, actions have been scrutinized or there's been a dispute about the legality of them, generally the agency has uh, has won most of the cases that have been brought, or in some cases. Uh, it's passed a rule that's regulated banks, and there hasn't been um, a challenge in court. So that's something that is, I think, designed to create, uh, and this is going to sound maybe very insidery, a sort of institutional credibility on the part of the Bureau that um, 
uh, is designed to um, uh, hopefully uh, put it in a place where it can survive a sort of deregulatory right. uh, um, atmosphere in Congress um, because it's got this uh, – strong record of being good at its job. Um, and some people, um, when they look at Washington agencies, think that, you know, agencies that have a record of being good at their job sort of avoid too much scrutiny and regula- and um, statutory pullbacks like, like the Financial Choice Act. So uh, we'll have to see whether the CFPB's uh, regulatory record is strong enough that it, it, its reputation uh, will help it survive the water. And I, and I agree with what Peter says. It also is uh, you can understand, um, you know, a financial watch, watchdog that looks at it, the banks and is out to pre- protect your interests. That's uh, an easier political sale right. to make than, you know, is the Financial Stability Oversight Council the right place to organize uh, rescue or, uh, or failure of a bank uh, institution? You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, joined in studio by Wharton's David Zaring on the phone with Wharton's Peter Conti-Brown. Your comments are welcome as we talk about Dodd-Frank and some of the changes we may or may not see come forward here in the next uh, weeks and months. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. To a degree, Peter... I mean, this isn't a surprise that that this push is happening on this. I mean, President Trump talked about it uh, in the campaign uh, leading up to the election, uh, but also from the perspective of two of the entities that he has in his cabinet right now, uh, really being Steve Mnuchin and and Gary Cohn. And and a lot of people see that this is almost a foregone conclusion to try and push this through Congress because of those two gentlemen alone. Yeah. You know, here's what surprises me uh, about this. And that is that the White House is just being inundated right now with the Russia investigations, with the Comey firing, uh, with the travel ban litigation. It's just getting hit from all sides. And in other eras of of dramatic scandal, think uh, Clinton impeachment, uh, think Iran-Contra during the Reagan administration, Watergate. Right. Uh, Things just just get locked up and there's no progress. You just don't – you just – everybody in Congress – uh, in the White House, in the press, are consumed with the scandal. And that's not happening here. Uh, and I think that's a credit to the House Republicans of knowing uh, their uh, knowing their business and knowing their preferences. Trump never won over the majority of, uh, of establishment Republicans, if we define establishment Republicans by those who've been in Washington a long time. Uh, they saw opportunistically the chance to push their agenda, either because the agenda matched the president's, or because he didn't care and didn't really pay much attention. And when he chose Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin to be his primary economic uh, 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 policymakers in the administration, he was essentially saying, I'm ceding over to this establishment-type ethos uh, uh, to these two gentlemen. And rather than getting bogged down in the travel ban and the the Russian investigations and the Comey firing, they've proceeded. The House Republicans have proceeded. Mnuchin and Cohn have proceeded. And as a result, this is a this is a pretty striking legislative achievement. I mean, Paul Ryan, in an interview just yesterday, said, "While everybody else was watching Comey, we repealed and replaced Dodd Frank." <laughs> right? That was that's a dramatic overstatement. The choice, the Financial Choice Act, leaves a lot of the architecture that Dodd Frank created in place, uh, and there's a long road ahead uh, for the for the bill before it's a law. But the basic gist of this is correct. 
And so we're not seeing the Republicans uh, uh, freeze up. And this is one of the reasons why for a lot of people thinking, okay, well, where's the line? When, when will Republicans finally say, okay, this president is, is, uh, has behaved uh, inappropriately or this, uh, the circus-like atmosphere is, uh, is preventing us from accomplishing our agenda? I think the answer is that, in fact, the circus might be facilitating them in their, in their efforts here because it's distracting public attention from just how big their ambitions are with respect to both Obamacare and Dodd-Frank. And that ambition has been, there's been no secret about this uh, for many years. They want to get rid of those things. David? Replace them with something else. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, uh, I got to give credit to the House for um, sticking to its knitting. Um, You know, um, uh, there's a there's a set of priorities in Washington, and it's not clear whether if the White House still matters in this uh, inquiry, as well as if the how the Senate uh, thinks about things, where this stands vis-a-vis getting something done in health care and then getting something done on tax reform. Uh, but if those things uh, can be achieved, it could be uh, that the you know the House has shown uh, the Senate and the White House that. Um, you can try to make progress on on those regulatory areas, and also make progress on financial deregulation as well. Uh, and um, you know, so uh, uh, healthcare reform has gotten out of the house, and they haven't finished their tax cut, but they they got this through, and they got it through relatively uh, quickly and efficiently. And um, uh, in some ways, that's um, uh, a, I, I agree with Peter. That's a sign that they've been able to focus on their agenda um, uh, in a way that hasn't been distracted too much by um, the other things that are going on in Washington. And going off of something you said a little while ago is is that your expectation, at least right now, is the bill that made it through the House of Representatives, if it, if a bill makes it through the Senate, it's not going to be the one that we saw passed. There's going to be some changes to it. Correct. Yeah, this is an opening bid. Uh, it includes basically every good idea, uh, or in some cases, not so good idea that um, uh, the deregulatory types in Washington have had about financial regulation. And uh, it's possible that there could be a, sta- a statute that comes out of the Senate that includes some of those ideas and uh, disregards others of them. Uh, uh, as Peter said, the Treasury Department's report. Uh, didn't call, for example, for a total repeal of the Volcker Rule, right. uh, and the Financial Choice Act did. So, um, so it's clear that not everything in the House's statute, the Financial Choice Act, is going to become a law. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, but um, you know, in, in some ways, they're now out there, having passed the House. They're uh, uh, available for. Um, uh, uh, other policymakers to take up and champion, and right. you know we'll see what makes it through that that whole process. If anything, I mean, it could be that um, that this is uh, um, an opening bid that never gets responded to. Peter, you know the um, the thing that I find so interesting is that we've got this opening bid, as David calls it, that's coming. You know, just uh, it's been percolating for for a long time. And the first version of the Financial Choice Act came out in September 2016. Uh, choice 2.0, as it was called, is what we have now, and it didn't. It, there are a few differences, uh, but but not many. Um, and and it's intriguing to me that we have almost simultaneously uh, a giant flashing yellow light coming out of the Treasury, uh, which is their 150-page document saying, you know, we've got uh, here's what the Trump administration thinks should be the priorities for changing law. And there are it's just a laundry list of legislative proposals 
that aren't even included in the Choice Act. Uh, some are deregulatory. Uh, some are just uh, uh, just shifting, uh, uh, you know, the priorities. And that's coming after the House has already passed their financial reform legislation. I think what that says to me is that they're going to have to do a do-over, whether it's going to be through uh, the conference bill that will be, have to be passed by both houses because the Senate's going to be so dramatically different than than the House bill, or because uh, or they're going to send it back to the House to to, to revamp entirely. I think mm-hmm. this is something that's not going to happen very quickly, and it's not going to be something that even if President Trump does not care about the details of this, and there's no indication that he does care, <laughs> uh, Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin do care, and yes. will be paying very close attention to this. So you can expect a lot of White House engagement and uh, and Treasury engagement in this process. What's intriguing is it's coming after the House had already done most of its work, uh, uh, much of which will be wasted. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, David. Great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Peter, great to talk to you again, my friend. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks. Thank you. David Zaring and Peter Conti-Brown of the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 